It's great to, to be back home. Not that, we've, not that I've been away a lot. <laughs> I've had to work in between, but uh, we went up the coast and uh, just uh, my f- family were camping up around Waitareri and it was really great just to spend some time there. It's great to be away, but guess what? It's always good to be back. Amen? Amen. <laughs> and it's really great. And uh, I would, I'd like to welcome particularly those that maybe are here for the first time that have never been part of our family before. But, you know, we've been on an incredible journey over the last, I suppose, nine, ten years in this place where God is actually not tipping things upside down and putting things the right way around. And it has been a really difficult journey in some ways, but it's been the best journey as we've learned to come into surrendering and and allowing him to do the work in us because there's nothing in us that can do this work. It has to be him. And more than anything else is that we want the authentic life of God dwelling in us rather than imitating what everybody tends to do. And the world will know because of what? Love. And we cannot produce this love ourselves. It has to be his love in us. Otherwise, we just play acting, I guess you could say. But this year is going to be an amazing year. And uh, as a family, we're going to be looking at three core essential things to our relationship with Christ. Faith, hope, and love. And this morning, I want to focus on love something that God has really been speaking to me about. And I want to declare one of Jesus' declarations, if you like. It's his prayer found in John 17, verse 26. He says, I have declared to them your name and will declare it. What's he going to declare? That the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Let me read that again. And I will declare it that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What a powerful prayer. Now, Jesus prayed that for you and I. Is that part of our living reality? I had to ask myself this question. Is it a part of my living reality? Because Jesus did pray it. He declared it over us. And it reveals, I mean, if you look at verse 20 to 27, which I haven't got up there, but it reveals Jesus in the Father's heart for us. It states in 24, Jesus starts off, Father, I desire. That's his desire for us, to come in to know his love and to come into that beautiful place of learning to grow and walk with him and being one with him, abiding with him and one another. As I said, this love cannot be manufactured. And the church, over a long period of time, has tried to manufacture it. And the world looks at the church and doesn't see anything different. Yet in the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit fell, the world looked at what had happened. It turned the whole city upside down because they saw there was something very powerful happening. And they saw the love that they had for each other. Only God could do that. And yet God longs for us to come in to truly know his love for us and to know that he is love. They're not inseparable. They are together. 1 John 16 verse 19 says this, 
and we have known and we have believed that the love of that the, uh, sorry we have known and believed the love that God has for us let me stop there i'll repeat that and we have known and believed the love that God has for us how many of us believe that I've just read that through very, very quickly, but it stopped me as I was reading it through this time. How many of us actually know and believe the love that God has for us? Or is it a vague, distant feeling somewhere out there that's never really touched your heart and changed and transformed you? God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. God's love for us is no different to anyone else. He doesn't love Greg more than he loves me, or he doesn't love anyone else more than the other person. Just because Paul lives in Upper Hutt, he doesn't love him less. <laughs> we, we, we know there's a prison and that there's the, the army out there guarding that place. It's a pretty rough place. No, just joking. <laughs> but the fact is that God loves us regardless of who we are, what we are, what we've been through, whether we've had a good background or a bad background, whether we've had lots of money, no money, whether we've had a ter- horrific past or a good one. It doesn't matter. Everybody he loves equally the same. It's just a matter of how much We are prepared to receive that love, to know and to believe that love, just as he prayed at the beginning, that we may know and believe the love God has for us. That's a promise. That's right there. This is a question I had to ask myself. Am I being perfected by his love? Greg just talked about maturity. That's what being perfected is. It's his love in us, maturing us and changing and transforming us. Am I being perfected in his love? Have you ever asked yourself that question? My reality was for many, many years as a Christian, living out of fear and man-made effort. And the gap seemed so huge. Yet so many Christians live their lives like that. We live in fear, but perfect love what? Casts out all fear. So why are we living in fear? Is love being perfected in us? Yet God, Jesus didn't pray that prayer because it sounded very poetic or inspirational, did he? He declared that it was possible for us to fully enter into all that he has for us particularly knowing him and abiding in his love. Why would Jesus declare something if it wasn't possible? Have you ever thought of that? And yet for so many Christians, it's a foreign concept to them. 
Have you ever heard the phrase, oh, but we're only human after all? I think there's a song about that too. (laughs) But it's an easy catchphrase that uh, somehow helps to excuse us or makes us feel better. But it leaves us so woefully short of what God has for us to enter into. But Jesus was was the Son of God. He was, I mean, he was God. He had all that power and everything like in him. Yet we fully forget, actually, we forget often that Jesus was fully human too. And even though he could have drawn on his own power, he didn't. But what he did was he demonstrated what it was to fully trust in his Father and use the power of the Holy Spirit to do, to live the life that he was to live. He didn't use his own power. He trusted fully in his Father. So he demonstrated a life that is fully possible to live. But it comes down to trusting in our Father and his love. You see, God's love always leads us forward if we choose to follow. It's like the Father's hand is you know, holding out and saying, Son, daughter, will you take hold of my hand and lead you through the process? Because when we, when we come to that point of realizing we can't do it, but he can, there's something beautiful about surrendering it and then lifting up your hand and taking hold of his and allowing you to walk through the process. He doesn't jump you from there to there very, very quickly, although sometimes he is for some people. For the majority of us, he leads us through the process because he wants to form his character and his nature and his love in us. It's all part of being perfected by his love. But the beginning point is us surrendering to him, allowing him to do the work, and then taking hold of his hand like a father and a son. I just want to give you, just I know we've heard this story so many times before, but I just want to go over just a couple of points in it because it's such a great example. It's, it's a, the rich young ruler uh, in Mark 10, verse 17 to 22. I know we've heard it a number of times, but just a couple of things I just want to bring out. I'll just read it out. Now, as he was going onto the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And so Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but the one that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not be a false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he answered and he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now this is the bit I want to look at. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at his word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
you know, even though this guy had absolutely everything you could ask for, he had status, he had position, he had family, uh, probably a title, he had, um, uh, you know, he probably knew uh, the word back to front, upside down, inside out, he tithed, he did offerings, he did everything he could possibly be, he lived a good life, and yet he knew there was something missing, but he couldn't put his finger on it. And so he takes the opportunity to encounter with Christ. The thing I love about the story is he comes running. Have you ever seen that? Zacharias was up a tree for, uh, for uh, blind Bartimaeus. It was yelling out. Whatever it is that God is, is, is tugging on your heartstrings, do. And this young man comes running up to him and kneels before him. He must have seen something in Jesus that he knew there was something about him that was different from everyone else. And he comes and he kneels. And then he calls him good. And you know, one, just quick one thing about the good part is that in those days, in the, in the Hebrew context, is that you never called anyone good. Only God was good. So had that young man seen something in Jesus that others hadn't? You never know. And the difference about being a teacher of the day was most teachers in those days quoted everyone else. They quoted the commentaries. They quoted this Pharisee said this one or this scribe said that one. And it was all quotes and then they used to debate it and argue it. And more than the word, they were quoting the, and debating the commentaries. No wonder they never got anywhere half the time. But Jesus taught as one having an authority. And people notice the difference between those who quoted others and had a lot of knowledge compared to Jesus, who not only declared the word, but demonstrated the life God was calling us into. Because he had a relationship with his father, he was able to speak, not quote. He was able to speak with authority what his father had shown him. This was totally unheard of. But getting back to this young man, he tries to enter the conversation, maybe on an intellectual scale, I don't know, but he enters it, for this is all he knows. He asks that question, and Jesus talks about the commandments. However, as I said, this is what I want to focus on. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Everything Jesus does is out of love. Everything Jesus does is out of love. Everything he looks at you for is out of love. And even though we can't understand every situation that happens, it's always love. And he gives us the same opportunity over and over and over again to come into his love and to let go to let go of what we hold. And the letting go is the hardest part sometimes, and it's purely because of what we see. I remember when I was ill. Um, uh, for two years I'd been ill, and coming up to the last, uh, I suppose, six to eight months, I was struggling to get to work. And the reason I was trying to get to work was because I didn't know. I mean, we, I'd have to work for six months without any income. 
Could I trust the Father with no income? And yet, day by day, I was struggling to get to work and I was trying to get closer. I knew I had an operation coming up, so I knew I had to allow a certain amount of time off to get there. And so, it was like he was saying to me, let it go. Can you trust me? Because that's what he said to me back in 2016, 15, I forgot what the time was. When I was in, in pain and how God had spoken to me, he said, be still, do not fear. Can you trust me? Will you allow me to take hold of my hand and lead you through the process? And, and I had allowed him to lead me through that first part and it was the most beautiful thing of, of knowing God and his love in me. But it came to this point about finances. Could I trust him? Now, God cares for us, but I had to let it go. You know what? And we saw, and you've heard my testimony, we saw the most incredible giving and, and, and provision that I've ever known in my life over that period of six months. I'd only wished I'd done it earlier. But out of my striving, purely was because, did I really fully trust him? And yet he was saying, let it go, you can trust me. So this young man is suddenly caught in a, um, a really difficult position in some ways because of what he saw. And a couple of weeks ago, Greg spoke about the matters of the heart. And it's exactly what Jesus spoke to. He spoke to the matters of the heart. But this man really... Uh, the root of the issue wasn't the wealth, it was his heart. And the answer that Jesus gave really cut through to his heart. He couldn't argue it and he couldn't debate it, which is what you did with a teacher. He was cut through to the heart. All this young man could see was earthly. And so all he heard was an earthly answer. So all he heard was, go sell your possessions, go sell your possessions, go sell your possessions. Oh my goodness, I'm going to have to sell my possessions. Now, is that all that Jesus said? You see, somehow in our nature, that's what we do. We just pick up the negative and that's all we focus on. We focus on the earthly. Look at this. One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. He's focusing on, I've got to sell my possessions. So all he heard at this point, you see, we only hear what we want to hear. And this is the point, there was no external perspective. Yet that is exactly what he asked for. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? See, he wanted an earthly answer to resolve an eternal issue. Very good. <laughs> Sadly, often we do the same. We want the rewards of eternal life, but workable in a worldly, acceptable way that is convenient and easiest for us to manage. Isn't that true? We want the rewards of eternal life, but workable in a worldly, acceptable way that is convenient and easy for us to manage. Jesus replied with an eternal answer. If, only, if we only hear it from an earthly filter, we will only hear or see an earthly outcome 
which comes way short of what God intended. He was offering him something out of this world, literally. But he couldn't see it because of his earthly mentality. What was holding his heart needed to be dismantled and rebuilt in God's love. And this was a crossroad for him, yet he chose to turn his back on him and walk away. Yet Jesus never stopped loving him. And that's the most beautiful thing about him. God never stops loving us. And he gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for us to turn back. Now that's a patient father because he loves his children, that he wants us to come into it. He's prepared to wait for us to turn. Are we prepared to do that, to turn back? Why couldn't this young man see? Was he blind? You see, the biggest spiritual battle over us is spiritual sight. Satan knows that if he can keep us ignorant, if he can keep us earthly focused on what is on offer, and void of knowing his love, he will keep us bound and stunted. You know, Satan doesn't have to do anything. He just needs to keep us ignorant. And we do that ourselves. And yet God is so much more. We will never see from an eternal perspective if our sight is blurred or distorted. That's why Paul prayed in Ephesians 1 verse 17 that the eyes of our hearts or the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. I pray that over myself many, many times because I realize there's a blindness that comes over our eyes that we can't see. I want to see. But my earthly perspective is not going to help me see. It has to be him removing that veil that we can see. If this young man's eyes had been opened, he would have gladly left or forsaken everything else and pursued Jesus with everything he had. What can you see? Or what are you limited to see? There's no limitation with God. Yet so often we're so earthly focused and so focused on what we're doing that we miss the bigger plan that God has for us. And another example I want to focus on this morning is an incredible story of a young man who had everything taken away from him and yet God restored him and brought him back. So much so that he, he got him to feed at the king's table. It's a remarkable story. And yet, because of the filters around his eyes, he missed coming into so much more in fact, he lost most of his inheritance. How can that happen? I wonder if you can turn with me to Second Samuel, uh, chapter nine, verse one to thirteen. And uh, you'll have to forgive me for the pronunciation if it's right or wrong. <laughs> it's a big word, and you have to say it over and over again to try and get anywhere <laughs> near it. Verse 1, now David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him today, they called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. 
Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show, now listen to this, the kindness of God? Isn't that interesting? And Ziba said to the king, There is still the son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Makar, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. And the king David sent and brought him out of the house of Makar, the son of Amiel, uh, from Lodabar. Now when Meshibosheth, the son of David, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face, prostrated himself. Then David said, Meshibosheth, and he answered, Here is your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake. And will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat the bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I am? So I. And the king called Ziba, uh, the Saul servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belongs to Saul and all his house. You therefore and all your sons. And your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest, that your master's son may have food to eat. But Meshibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded to his servant, so will your servant do. And as for Meshibosheth, the king said, You shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. So Meshibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both feet. I mean, this story really is really the salvation story, isn't it? Meshibosheth um, was once royalty. He was part of the royal family, but due to an accident, he became a cripple. Therefore, he was unable to come into the king's presence. David, when he conquered Jerusalem, had said no cripples or blind or, or handicapped person at all can come into the king's presence unless it was under, the, uh, under death. So it was pretty, pretty strict. So Meshibosheth could not come into the king's presence. And you know, we're crippled with sin. We couldn't come into the king's presence. We couldn't come there. And yet David, just like God, reached out to Meshibosheth, and brought him in. And God's done that to us. He's reached out and he's brought us and he's saved us. And he's restored all the inheritance that was taken from us and given us a fresh start and to be a son at his table. Isn't that a beautiful story? It's a beautiful story. And he got to sit and eat at the king's table. And we get to do the same. And But so many times I've heard this story being preached, it's always ended there. And that's it. It's like, you know, one of those Walt Disney cartoons, the classics, you know, where the princess meets the prince and they finally get married and they're, they're in a carriage and they're rowing, you know, riding off into the sunset and the big moon sort of, or sun or whatever it is. And it says, the end, and they lived happily ever after. How many know life isn't quite like that? <laughs> but let me read verse 13 again. So Meshibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table. I'd be happy if it stopped right there. 
But it doesn't. It ends with, and he was lame in both feet. I wonder why they brought that out. For centuries, the church has focused on getting people across the salvation line, but not beyond that point. Yet the love of God was to bring us into maturity and living constantly from a relationship of abiding in him and his love. There's all the wedding preparation happening. Have we even focused or thought about that? I know it's being preached and uh, taught in this church, which is great. Is that a living reality? Is that your desire? Because it's ha- the preparation work happens here, not afterwards. As we abide in his love and live out from him, we come into a lifestyle that lives from an eternal perspective. We see differently. We will live differently. You know, it's funny. I heard this the other day and I thought, actually, it's so true. The Lord's Prayer. That's an eternal prayer. There's only one part of the Lord's Prayer that is actually about earthly stuff. That's earthly provision. The rest of it's all about eternity. Have you ever seen it in that light before? Everything that God is doing is preparing us for eternity, preparing us for what is. But the preparation work happens right here. See, once saved, our journey has only just begun. His love draws us deeper into him as he begins the process to transform us into himself. Somehow, like Meshibosheth, we get stuck sitting at the king's table, but never having our minds renewed. We can be saved and still have fleshly uh, responses to everything that comes our way. We are in the kingdom, but not of the kingdom. Now, something doesn't sound quite right, does it? We're in the kingdom, but not of the kingdom. Shouldn't it be, we are in this world, but not of this world? So why is it that we often have it the other way around? I'm part of the kingdom, but I'm not living as part of the kingdom. I had to ask myself the same question. Am I living in the kingdom and from the kingdom? Let's focus on, it says here that he was lame in both feet. Was that just tacked on, the end? Actually, here's an important point. If we allow the lameness of what happened in our past to dictate our future, we too can end up missing all that God has for us. We can still be sitting at the king's table, but never progressing from there. This is exactly what happened to Meshibosheth. He never progressed from that point. He got saved and he sat. And without his mind being renewed, he saw everything from his earthly perspective. And a lot of Christians can come into that place of getting saved, and yet the baggage and all the different stuff that's around our lives can follow us and stay with us. And so we see only out of that. And so it holds us back. And yet God's love wants to what? Draw us into more of what he has. He had the privileges of royalty, but the filter of his mind still said that he was a nobody who didn't deserve to be there. And you'll be surprised the number of Christians that have that same mentality. I know I've had that before. True? 
Now, I want to read this short passage, if I may. And, and I know this. Oops, where is it? It was a little bit controversial. Um, it was just a little passage from the shack. And I know some people, uh, regardless of what you thought of it, there was a lot of things that, uh, statements or things that came out that was just so true and so powerful. So regardless of where you're at with that, just I want you to just focus on the words that have been spoken. And it's the time when Papa is talking with, with Mac, and this little bird comes and sits on the windowsill, and then Papa holds, puts some breadcrumbs in her, uh, her hand and holds out, and the little bird hops into the hand and starts pecking, and then the conversation starts. Consider our little friend here, Papa began. Most of the birds were created to fly. Being grounded for them is a limitation within their ability to fly, not the other way around. She paused to let Mac think about his statement. You, on the other hand, were created to be loved. So for you to live as if you were unloved is a, limit, is a limitation, not the other way around. Mac nodded his head, not so much in full agreement, but more as a signal that is least he understood and was tracking. This seems simple enough. Living unloved is like clipping a bird's wings and removing its ability to fly. That's not something I want for you. Now here was the rub. Mac didn't feel particularly loved at that moment. Mac, pain has a way of clipping our wings and keeping us from being able to fly. She waited for a moment, allowing her words to settle. And if it's left unresolved for a long time, you can almost forget that you were ever created to fly in the first place. Mac was silent. Strangely, the silence was not uncomfortable. Mac looked at the little bird, and the bird looked back at Mac, and he wondered if it was possible for birds to smile. At least, at least Mr. J looked as if he was, even if he was only sympathetically. I'm not like you, Mac. It wasn't a put-down. It was a simple statement of fact. But to Mac, it felt like a splash of cold water. I am God, and I am who I am. And unlike you, my wings cannot be clipped. Well, that's wonderful for you, but where exactly does that leave me? Mac blurted out, sounding more irritated than he would have liked. Papa began stroking the little bird and brought him up close to his, to his face and said, smack dab in the centre of my love, as the two of them cuddled nose to beak. I'm thinking that the bird probably understands it better than I do, said Mac. I know, honey, and that's why you're here. Why do you think I said I'm not like you? Well, I've really no idea. I mean, you're God and I'm not. He couldn't keep the sarcasm out of his voice, but she ignored it completely. Yes, but not exactly. At least not in the way you're thinking, Mac. I am in some way what you say holy and wholly other than you. The problem is that many folks try to grasp the same, some sense of who I am by taking the best version of themselves, projecting that onto the ninth degree, factoring in all the goodness they can perceive, which isn't often much, and then calling that God. And while it may seem like a noble effort, the truth is that it falls painfully, pitifully short of who I really am. I'm not merely the best version of who you think of. I am far more than that, above and beyond all that you can think and ask or think. I'm sorry, but, but they're just words to me, and they don't make much sense, Max shrugged. And even though you can't finally grasp me, guess what? 
I still want to be known. Every human is designed to live out of my life. A bird is defined not by being grounded, but by his ability to fly. Remember this, humans are defined not by their limitations, but by the intentions I have for them. Not by what it seems to be, but by everything it means to be created in my image. Isn't that beautiful? Some beautiful passages in there. But do you understand, you know, we were designed to be loved. And like a bird, if there's no love there, it's like a bird being clipped. We can't fly. And then when we get so caught up in that and we, it becomes normal, we forget that we were ever created to, to be loved. We often see God's love through earthly filters, no matter how bad or good our father was. It comes down, it comes so short of what God's love has for us. And you know, we all have filters. Every single one of us has filters. When we get saved, our earthly minds have to be renewed. Otherwise, we'll only view things through our filters. Those who live constantly in fear will always view God's love for them through this lens. Man, I know heaps of Christians, including myself, that viewed God through fear. Yet perfect love casts out all fear. Fear cripples us and leaves us bound up. You know, the guy that wrote that book, The Shack, his testimony is incredible. Because he came, he, he was abused and uh, he became an abuser. He, he went through all sorts of horrific things. And then he thought that by becoming a minister, somehow this would all go away and it would all come right. But he found that it all followed him. And things went bad to worse. And eventually, I'm going to cut it very, very short, he actually, uh, his life fell apart. And then God took him on this incredible journey over 11 years to restore him. And he undid bit by bit every part of him so that everything was exposed to the light and to his love. You know, he now has no fear. He has no fear of judgment. He has no fear at all because he knows what the love of God has done to restore him. So he lives out of God's love in him. Because he's been set free. And God's love is here to set us free. It's not to bind us up. But there's something in us that has to hide everything and has to bind it up and to try and cover it up. Because think, well, we feel exposed. But actually, God's love is there to expose it for him. He knows about it anyway, so that we can be free of it and walk into the freedom of it. And really, that, that book was really a testimony of 11 years banged down to a weekend. But that's his testimony in, in so many ways. You know, I've heard a lot of Christians say, oh, God's love is not that soppy. You know, it's, it's never like that. Yet sadly, when I've spoken to them about, about the Lord and things like that, often I find... They go towards, it's always the, the judgment side. It's always the, um, the tough love side. But it's never about the love of God. Why? Because they never actually experienced it themselves. You can only be what you experience. 
if you've never tasted God's love and it allowed it to change you, it'll only be a word on a page or a sentence or human love that is so limited. When I first got saved, before, in fact, I got saved, I lived in fear. God was a judge, a harsh judge. If you did anything wrong, you were condemned. So I tried my very best about being good. But the, the, the trouble I had, of course, was that if I failed, did that cancel out all my good works or just some of them? Did I have some in the bank or not? And I used to worry about this because if I died, I didn't know whether I'd, I'd get in or whether I wouldn't get in. I just went to a traditional church, but there was no relationship there. And love is only based on relationship. It wasn't until I got saved. And I remember getting slain in the spirit. I, I didn't know what slain in the spirit was because I'd never seen it before. But the guy prayed for me, and bang, I was hit by the power of God. And I remember the wave after wave after wave of love coming over me. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever experienced. I got up off that floor different. I was totally changed. I went from being such a quiet person without hardly saying boo to anybody, and I couldn't stop talking about what God had done for me. They couldn't shut me up. <laughs> I wish, you know, some people wish they had. <laughs> but this isn't so true. When you're touched by God's love, when I was ill over those two years in and out of hospital, the love of God was just amazing. When I cried out to him, his love washed over me. The pain didn't disappear, but his love was beautiful. I got to know a depth of God's love I've never experienced before. It's like, you know, when Paul says, you know, how wide, how deep and how long is his love? You can't get to the end of it. And the, the worse the pain got, the deeper his love got. And that's a real testimony I have of his love walking with me. You know, on, on YouTube, there's heaps and heaps of testimonies of Arabs, of Jews, Muslims coming to know Christ. Now, the amazing thing is that no man's intervention, uh, no man has spoken to them. It's God speaking to them in dreams. It's God appearing to them. God speaking to them. And they all have one thing in common. What is it? Love. They all talk about God's love. Now, all those people, you know, the, the Muslims and even the Jews, it's about rote, it's about doing things, it's about knowing the law. For Muslims particularly, it's a very harsh God. You fail, that's it. You know, there's, there's, there's judgment there. And so they see God as a, as a really hard person. But here they encounter God, and it's the love of God they encounter. And they've never known anything like it. It's so beautiful. But you see, that's what God, he is. That's who he is. He is love. And often we view God like that through our own lens. And yet he is love. And these guys, when they talk about it, it's just incredible because they've experienced it. One guy, it's funny, one Muslim, who was, uh, he'd, he'd murdered Christians, he'd, he'd done all sorts of things. He was a hard man. 
And he was in prison at the time. He was reading the Quran, and he, his, his desire was to get everybody saved. And he's sitting there, and this horrible presence came into the cell and was like choking out this. And he, he didn't know what to do. And he heard this voice so clearly saying, Call upon the name of Jesus. He said, I can't do that. <laughs> but when he did, that horrible presence just went. And he was shaken. He'd never known anything like it. And then over the next couple of months, God revealed himself more and more to him. You know, his love broke him. And you know when God's love breaks, breaks a person, because quite a few of them testify how much God has placed a love for the Jews in their heart. That has to be God. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? You also get the testimonies about those who have died and have come back. Ian McCormick is one of them. Have you ever noticed that whenever Ian McCormick talks about his experience when he met the Father, when he met Jesus up in heaven, that his eyes start to water? His voice starts to quiver? Why? Because it was so amazing. When he was touched by his love, it's an experience he has never forgotten. And there's countless of others who have experienced that near-death experience, and it's the one thing they talk about is his love. It's a real thing. It's a real thing that God wants us to come into because it sets us free. God's love redefines everything. Take, take away love and all you have left is religion. I think Mel said that, I think it was. Religion is just man's attempt to be accepted and approved by God. Now, just for the sake of time, I won't read the, the, the rest of Meshibosheth, but it can be found in 2 Samuel 16, verse 1 to 4. And chapters 19, verse 24 to 30. Absalom rises up, and of course the king has to flee out of there. Everybody moved as one out of there. But Meshibosheth was lame in both feet. He couldn't move. He could have, but he didn't. He tried to, but he was weak. He was unprepared for what was to come. And he found that his feet stopped him from stepping out. You see, under pressure, we revert to what we really are. Under pressure, when God's love is in us, we'll flow out. There'll be peace, patience, love, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering. All those things will just happen. It'll flow out under pressure. If it's, there's no love there, it'll come out in anger and bitterness and blaming everybody and yelling and screaming under pressure, real love will come out or it won't come out. That's why old wineskins cannot transition into the new. God's love always calls us forward and more of him, which means shedding off the old and receiving the new. What's more, without knowing it, Meshibosheth's inheritance was being whittled away as he sat at the table by a servant. The servant was a greedy guy. He was very smart and cunning. But while he was sitting at the king's table doing nothing, it was just being whittled away. We can have our whole inheritance whittled away. What God promises us, this is the promises that he gives us. It's on offer. We can sit at the king's table and receive none of it. Absalom's defeated. The king returns back to Jerusalem. And Meshibosheth has to give an account. Did you know the king's returning for us? And we have to give an account. And because of Meshibosheth's confession, 
He lost half his inheritance. And then by his own mouth, he just gives it away. He loses it all. He still gets to sit at the king's table as a son, but he's lost his inheritance. I pray this morning that our heart would not be so hard that we'll just sit at the king's table thinking, oh, well, one day it'll get better, but that we will call out to him and grow in his love. Because that's the Father's heart. As Jesus said, my desire is. It's about the love, us knowing his love and walking in that love. It's time for God's love is calling us forward into a freedom and a lifestyle that is foreign to this world. It's through this process that our character is being shaped and formed, forged as Christ is formed in us. God has so much more for us to enjoy and for, all, for, all, sorry, for those who will allow his love to transform us. This is the living reality he longs for us to come into. It's an eternal reality. 1 John 4, 17, I'll just end with a couple of verses. Love has been perfected among us that we have boldness in the day of judgment. When we have God's love in there, there is no fear. It's been cast out. So when we stand before him, if it's his love in us, there is no judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. His love is a living reality that have, I've only just started to come into. More and more, my life has been started to be changed because I've realized I can't do bridge that gap that, you know, that there is there. There's that living reality that God's talking to, and there's my reality. But God is saying, trust me, take hold of my hand, allow me to lead you into it. And that's what God is saying this morning. Don't feel condemned. Don't feel that this is way beyond you. All God is looking for is a humble heart, a heart that is able to be surrendered. And a new commandment I give to you, that you should love one another as I've loved you, that you should also love one another. And that's what the world is looking for. The world longs for God, uh, for God's love. It doesn't know it, but when it sees it, it longs for it, it wants it. I just want to pray, but... This is such a beautiful thing when you start to know God's love. But God doesn't want us to, to touch us with little bits of love. He wants his love abiding in here. His love continually abiding because he is love. Father, I thank you that your love for us is so great. Thank you that you love us and long to draw us more into yourself because the whole of eternity is with you, with love. But the journey and the process begins now. And I just pray that each person that heard this word today would not be feeling condemned, but would be prepared to let go and to come into such life and freedom in you. So Father, I pray touch everybody this morning by your love. Pour out your spirit upon us. 
because you've given us everything we need to come into you as we fully trust you. We want to say to you, loving Father, we trust you. And we know that the journey that you have for us is not apart from you, but with you. And so this morning we put our hands in your hands and say, Lord, we trust you. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Loving Lord. allow God's love to come around you. seed.